Now, we're going to be in a series of messages. We started this last week on grace, conflicted by grace because so many of us in this age of grace that we talk about it all the time, it is, it is so misunderstood in so many ways. So how are we going to tie grace in to small groups? Well, we'll look to that in just a minute. But as we look at grace, we, sat, we said last week that grace defined as God's undeserved favor or God's generosity. And so if that's God's generosity, if everything I have belongs to God and everything that I have comes from God and God's grace is generosity and God giving to me and giving to you, we want more grace. We want that. We want that in our life because I want to I have a life in favor of God. I want to have a life that's blessed by God. And so I want to do everything I can on my part to receive the grace of God in my life. Then the question comes up, okay, we have saving grace. That takes a lot of humility, and we said that last week. A lot of humility to come to Christ and admit that you've sinned, come short of God's glory, and now you need to receive Christ. But what about after becoming a believer in Christ? Where does the grace tie in there? How does it apply to our life? And this passage gives us some answers to that question. In Matthew chapter 20, last week we went over a, a parable, a little teaching that Jesus was doing with his disciples, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And <clears throat> we said that we learned that God's grace gives, God gives grace according to his wisdom and according to his sovereignty. And we talked about the lenses of, had two pairs of glasses. We had the lenses of grace and the lenses of fairness. And how you look at life through those lenses is going to depend on whether you really receive the grace that God wants you to have. Let me say this. Until we understand the grace of God, how it works, and the necessity of it in our life, we'll never really experience Christ like we need to experiencing him, experience him. So this morning, I want us to look at three things. Grace to you, grace from you, and grace for you. Beginning in verse 19, grace to you. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and he took 12 disciples aside. On the way, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. Those were the Jewish leaders of that day. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, meaning the Romans, to be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and who will be raised on the third day. Now, this is the third time that Jesus is talking to his disciples about dying and being resurrected. And every time they've had so far a very strange response to it all. But we answer, we ask ourselves the question, why did he do this? Why did he not just come as a good example? Why did he not just come and, and say, hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm living this life. You kind of follow me. Why in the world do you have to go to the problem of dying on the cross and being raised on the third day. Well, the answer is given to us at the, uh, in the middle of this passage today in verse 28, where it says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom. Why did he give his life? Well, he did that as a ransom. And a ransom back in this day and what he's pulling from is slavery imagery. You go into a slave market and you pay whoever the owner is of that slave a price to free that slave. And Jesus himself became the ransom. Now, this is very important for us to understand. We don't get the grace of God until we get this. For example, 
If, if I were to tell you, oh, I love you, and I do love you, by the way, just side note, I do love you, but say I, I were to love you, and, and, uh, and uh, uh, I, I would say that to you, and we were on a shore, and there's the lake, and we're on a dock, and I say, I love you, I'm going to show you how much. I jump into the water, and I start wrestling alligators, and I get eaten. And you say, wow, you know, he, I guess he did love, but why, why did he do that? There was nobody in the water to save. He just jumped in. That was crazy. <clears throat> Let's go eat lunch. So after that, <laughs> but what if I said, you know, I love you. And I looked around and your child was in the lake and I jumped in and I saved your child. Then I got eaten by an alligator. Well, you would say, let's, let's go to the funeral before we go to lunch. But you would say, okay, there was a reason behind it. There was a reason why you jumped into the lake. It makes sense to me now. We think about, I, I was talking to this uh, college student way back when I was in college, and I remembered this as I was studying this passage, and I was witnessing, and they asked me the question, well, wh why are you talking about the cross and the crucifixion of Christ? Am I supposed to be feel bad about that or something? I mean, why did all that happen? They couldn't get it. They didn't get it. Why Jesus Christ came to die. That's crucial that you understand that, or we will never really understand the grace of God. And it's important. Dear friends, let me share this with you. Christianity is set apart from every other religion in the world because of grace, because of what happened at the cross. You think about it, every single religion in the world can be described in doing better and working. You gotta work for something. You gotta please uh, the deity in some way in order to win favor. You have to walk the tightrope. You have to make sure your life is pure. But on the other hand, Christianity is the only one that says it's all of grace. I'm giving you as a gift eternal life. And the reason that has to be so is because we are sinners and separated from God. And until we understand the depth of the need, there are alligators out there in that world. There, there's sin out there in our lives, and that has to be forgiven. And the only way to do that was through the cross of Jesus Christ. And we look at this, and we understand that Jesus jumped in, and he paid the ransom on the cross to save us from the slavery of sin, of habits, of addictions in our life, a slavery to self-centeredness. And, and we're going to look at this in just a moment when we're talking about leadership, because even after we're a Christian, uh, leaders sometimes will be leaders for power. And that's what Jesus talks about in just a moment. Small groups, you, you join a small group in order to make a friend instead of to be a friend. Instead of contribute, you, you want something. There's nothing wrong with, with that in a way, but nevertheless, it changes the motivation of it. Jesus was the ransom himself. Now, you have to ask the, yourself the question, and I've asked myself this question back before I became a believer. Why? Why did Jesus have to die on a cross? Why go through all that? I mean, there's a lot of pain there. And then the resurrection and the ascension and all this, and the Holy Spirit coming down and all that, some in the book of Acts. Why didn't Jesus just say, you're forgiven? I mean, in the book of Genesis, he said, let there be light, and there was light. Let the darkness be separated from the light, and it was done. He created man from the dust of the ground. It was done. Why go to all the trouble to die on the cross for sins? Well, Tim Keller said it best, I think, when he says, all life, all life-changing love 
involves a substitutionary sacrifice. You know, that's not true, you think. That's, you know, I have to think about that. Think about it. What about raising your children? Some of you here are parents, and you raise your children, you think, well, there's no sacrifice there. I mean, that's easy, right? I mean, my goodness, no sacrificial love at all. I remember back in my last church, I had a small group teacher there and was telling his class, kind of rebuking his class for being late all the time. I mean, we never do that, you know. But anyway, he was rebuking his class because they had kids. They were young couples, and they, they had babies, and all of a sudden their life was changing. And he made this statement a couple of months before his first baby was born. He said, my, when we have our child, it will not be changing my life in that way. First Sunday after they had the baby, he was 15 minutes late to teach his own class. It does change. What do you do? You walk into the crib at night. I just throw the pacifier in the kid's mouth and let's go out to dinner. No, you you have to get a babysitter. You have to sacrifice, you know, a, a mom sacrificing giving birth to the baby. You've heard it often say, you know, in a comedy routine or whatever, you know, the mother crying, I went all that trouble and labor and this is how you're treating me. Hey, not only the labor, not only that, but the labor after the baby gets here. Being up in the middle of the night, feeding the baby, changing the baby, and all the things parents have to do. And your life just sort of stops. And you have to rearrange your life. You're sacrificing something in the life. When they get older, they cost money. You know that, right? I mean, I don't want to discourage anybody from getting married here or having babies. But when I had my three kids, I did a little research. I was doing a a series on on raising children back in my last church, and I came across a statistic. It said, if you have babies born today, and this was 30 30 years ago, it will cost you, on average, $250,000 to raise that child through college. Man, you've got four kids. That's a cool million, you know, right there. (laughs) And I would venture to say it's gone up from that and now it's probably a million for about two and a half. Then you kick them out after half, you know, that kind of, you're a million, man, that's your limit. It's sacrificial love. What about forgiveness? We've talked about that just a couple of weeks ago, and I think there was some misunderstanding. Well, not misunderstanding, I just didn't probably communicate it uh, well enough about forgiveness. But even in forgiveness, it costs you something. Remember what we said. If if you forgive, and I gave the illustration about money, if you let's lent somebody $500 and then you say, oh, just forget about it, you can't pay it back, just let's let it go. It's not free, it costs you $500. You pay for forgiving the person. It costs you something. Now, let me say this. Some people say, well, man, it just costs too much. I don't even, you know, I don't know about this forgiveness. You know, every time I hear about forgiveness, I begin to feel kind of guilty about things, you know, things going on in my past and and all that, man, I just feel, can I set you free for just a minute? Okay, (laughs) just want to know if I could. All right, (laughs) forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Reconciliation is not the same as restoration. It's not, it's kind of like a different level. For example, somebody says, well, my dad was an alcoholic. My dad wasn't, but say if your dad was, he was an alcoholic. He beat your mom, maybe he beat you. And I would venture to say that that's the story of somebody here. And then he leaves you. And all these years you haven't seen him. And you come across a sermon about forgiveness. He's like, I've never forgiven him. I need to forgive him. Why would you forgive him? 
because it's not for him. It's not has anything to do with him. He's not even around anymore. You're forgiving for you. And it only takes one person to do that. It doesn't take two. One person to forgive somebody else, their sin, so the root of bitterness will not get into your heart. So you forgive him. But there's no way that you can reconcile with him because it takes two to reconcile. So he shows up on your doorstep. And you say, well, I've, I've forgiven you. For what? You, still, you can't reconcile. Unless a person admits their guilt and repents, you cannot reconcile with that person. It takes two coming together to reconcile. This benefits both, and it's for community. But just because you can't reconcile with someone does not mean you haven't forgiven them. Then there's restoration. You say, well, my, my dad came back home, and we, we talked, and... You know, I, I prayed through it. I know as a Christian, I can call on the, upon the grace of God in my own life. So I not only forgave him, but I was reconciled with him in, in some sort of level, some sort of relationship. But now he wants to be my dad again, and he wants to be the grandfather of my kids, and I, I just can't let him do that. So that means I haven't forgiven him, right? No. You have forgiven him. You've been reconciled. But for him to be restored to being the grandfather that you're, maybe you're afraid for your kids being around your dad because you're not sure if he may start drinking again. You're not, you're not sure what he might do again. So they can't be around. You still have forgiven him. You just haven't restored. Restoration takes two. Restoration is for the offender. Forgiveness is for the offended. Restoration is for the offender. You bring them back into your life and it just, it just takes hard work. Jesus died for all that. Jesus Christ died on the cross. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of sin. The Bible says that he died on the cross. He was resurrected on the third day. And if we repent of our sins, we can ask Jesus Christ to come to our, our, into our heart. And we are reconciled, the Bible says, reconciled back to God. The Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of our heart. And we are restored to the original place man, man, men and women should have been back in the book of Genesis. We had that kind of sonship with God. Jesus Christ has did, did for us what we could not do for ourselves. There was a substitutionary sacrifice in his love. And that's what it takes. And dear friends, that's the grace of God. That's what Christ has done for us by his grace. Why? And this is important. We need to recognize the depth and the hurt and the pain our sin has caused Christ and God. When we recognize that, when we recognize there's nothing I can do to save myself, there's nothing I can do to, to wash off the stain of guilt on myself, there's nothing I can do. We've all sinned. We've come short of the glory of God. We, we can talk about all kinds of things that we've done before. All of us have broken, I believe all the, I think the Bible teaches we've broken all the Ten Commandments, either in our heart or in the flesh. God, I need forgiveness. And that's where salvation comes in. But what about after that? We look then at grace from you. And we've touched on this before. In the, in the last parable, when we talked about it in Matthew 18, uh, and, or, excuse me, Matthew 18, where it talks about another parable of servant. But let's look at it again. Grace from you. Look in verse 20. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up 
to him, and her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand, one on your left, in your kingdom. Okay? Now, Jesus has just talked about he was going to die on a cross, leave them behind, be resurrected on the third day, and what's their response? Jesus, don't talk like that. Oh, Jesus, you know, tell us more about this resurrection. Where are you going to go? What's you going to do? No, they said, "Uh, who's going to be the greatest? You know, what's in it for me? Now, you say you're going away. I mean, it seems like to me there's a kingdom to be set up here somewhere, so they put their mother up to something. That's what happened here, because you notice they were right there with her. Now, James and John were the sons of Zebedee, and I want James and John to be one on the right hand, one on the left. I don't care which one you you kind of choose, Jesus, but number two and number three in the kingdom when you take over Rome, which, of course, never happened. Worldly leadership, this, this is what it says. He said to them, you will drink, or rather in verse 22, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? The cup was actually the persecution they were gonna have The drink was to take in all of it, all in. And they said, we are able. They had no clue, really, even at this point. They didn't understand. And he said to them, you shall drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and on my left, that's not mine to grant, but it's for those who uh, has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Why were they? Because right back here in Matthew 18, when he predicted his death and resurrection before, they responded by saying, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? They were getting kind of tired of James and John and others talking about getting ahead of the game. Why did they want to get ahead of the game? Because Jesus said, called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever will be great among you, you must be, he must be the servant. And whoever will be the first among you, be your slave. Two different words, servant, diakonos, where we get a word deacon, voluntary service, doulos is slave. So the idea is here, I'm a slave of God and I serve others. Slave and servant. And he says this, the world says leadership is the Lord of. The reason you want to be on the right hand and on the left, you want to rule. You want to rule. And the leadership books in the secular world, we can learn from those, but basically they're, they're for uh, your benefit so you can get promoted and you can be better and do more. And if I can say this, manipulate the situation. Somebody says, well, you know, before you criticize somebody, you've got to get them a compliment first, then a criticism, then a compliment. I've heard it said, well, when I, when I go about something, I let it be their idea. What are you saying, their idea? It's not their idea, it's your idea. Your idea, and you're convincing them somehow through manipulation, it's their idea. Why are you doing that? Well, because we have a natural tendency to want a Lord over people, to rule over people. Jesus said, not so with you. You're going to have to be humble. And here is, again, what the Bible teaches in James 4. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility of heart. Humility of heart heart does not say, you know, I'm just a lowly creature. I'm just, you know, no, woe is me. I'm just pity me. I'm just, oh, no. We said 
the, the big secret to envy is comparison. You compare your house, your car, somebody, your job, your promotion, your pay, and you become envious. Talked about that last week. Humility doesn't compare at all. Not interested in yourself to compare yourself with anyone. anyone. Humility gives God the credit. 1 Corinthians says, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because you recognize everything that you have comes from God. You say, now wait a minute, pastor, I'm smarter than, than this guy over here. Who gave you the brains? But I'm more gifted. Who gave you the gifts? But I have the desire. The reason I have more money than the next guy over here, he's lazy and I work hard. Who gave you the desire to want it? Everything we have. Listen to what 1 Corinthians also says. For consider your calling, brothers, Paul says. Not many of you were wise according to the standards, worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. All of us here have no reason to boast because if we recognize everything comes from the grace of God, humility serves others. In verse 28, Jesus didn't come to to be served, but to serve, to give his life for a ransom for many. Why? He says in Hebrews, I'll just read you this verse. It won't be on your screen. He said, the writer of Hebrews said this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God for the joy. Why do you serve? For the joy. You say, well, the reason I serve, boy, I went out, you know, and, and fed the homeless, and I, I went out and, uh, and, you know, I taught Sunday school and small group, and I, I do all this stuff because it gives me joy. Wrong motivation. You do that, and pretty soon you won't have joy anymore. Joy is the result of doing it with the right motive because you're a slave of God and a servant of the people. You love God, you love people. You want to see them prosper in the Lord. You want to see them blessed. When I say prosper, I mean blessed in the Lord. You want to have them have favor with God. You want to see them grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we do that by always coming to the cross like every day. Every day. We recognize what Jesus has done for us because, again, how we got saved, the Bible says that same way you want to walk in Christ. How do we get saved? We humble ourselves to the cross. And the cross brings humility to life. It, we humble ourselves. So it changes us mentally. It changes us philosophically. It changes us in community. We talked about the Trinity of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and God having fellowship and communion with himself even before man was created. We talk about small groups and how important they are to you. We don't have them just because, wow, you know, aren't, aren't we supposed to have them? Every church, either in the homes or 
in the church building on Sunday, they have small groups. Why? Because they're needed for you. You need them. Our mission statement, building lives that matter by teaching people to love, know, trust, and follow Jesus. How are we going to do that? How are we going to be the church? People say, don't don't just go to church, be the the church. How are you going to be the church if you don't go to church and learn and be trained on how to be the church? How are you going to know how to love Jesus? How How are you going to know the stories of Jesus? How are you going to learn to trust Jesus in the adversities and trials and troubles that you and I go through every day? How are you going to follow him and believe that it's, you're better off following God than going your own way? How are you going to know that? You're going to know that by church, and the church in action is the small group. That's where we have teaching. That's where we have fellowship. And by the way, I remind you of the story I shared with you last week about the young lady from Willow Creek that wrote a story about turn of the century. She was involved in a small group, youth group, and they got scattered after graduating high school. They were on fire, as she called it. We were on fire for God. They scattered all over the country. They came back for the funeral of one of their own. At the age of 20, one of their youth group, former youth group girls committed suicide. 20 years old. They all came back together and she realized everybody's life was different. What happened? They went their own way. They didn't recognize the value of small groups and their group feeding one another like logs on a fire. They didn't think about it. They didn't realize it. And they just sort of fell away in their fire. And you say, well, you know, I I don't know if I need it. I've got enough friends and if I come to small group every two or three, four weeks. I'm, I'm going to renew these friendships. We get together during the week. What about someone who's coming today that needs a friend? You know, everybody wants a friendly church. You think, oh, we're a friendly church, so we're okay. Did you know that people are not so much looking for a friendly church, though they are, but they're looking for a friend at church? Kevin DeYoung tells a story of someone, as a pastor, someone came up to him and he was talking to them lady from Japan, could speak English. And he said, well, you've been visiting here. I've, I've noticed you visited here for several weeks. She said, yeah, I've been coming actually for a couple of months. Wow, that's great. Have you tried a small group? Yes, I have. How'd you like it? She said, I like the teaching. I, I like the joy in the room. But she said, you know, I've come to the conclusion that I need them as a friend, but they don't need me as a friend. Got enough friends. What about being the servant and reaching out to those who need a friend. What about, so, you know, I need to be there every week that I can. Every week I'm in town, I need to be there because someone may need someone to reach out to them. Lastly then, I got one minute to close this. Well, two, depending on what clock I'm looking at. All right, so (laughs) hang in there with me. Grace for you. Let me just tell you the story. The next passage, beginning in verse 29, Two blind men come up to Jesus and cry out, Lord, son of David, have mercy upon us. And the crowd just said, just be quiet. You're embarrassing. Embarrassing the master. And they cried the more. When Jesus called them forward, they dropped their garment, which was kind of like their blanket. They were homeless. They were out in the streets. They, they They didn't have anything else. They dropped everything they had and humbly knelt before the Lord and said, Lord, 
give us, give us some sight. Help us to see again. And God healed them. Cried out. Humility. I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm crying out. I'm crying out to Jesus. I'm going to give Jesus Christ my heart today. Well, yeah, but what would people think? I don't care what people think. That's just the devil's thoughts in my mind. I cried out the more. Lord, save me today. Forgive me of my sin. It takes humility. It takes a humble heart to receive Christ in his saving grace. Only when we see the why, the ransom behind the cross, can we find the humble heart to receive his grace. What about you today? Maybe that's your first step. Small group would be great for you whether you're a follower of Christ or not. It would. But why don't you become a follower of Christ now? Why don't you cry out to God? Why don't you be like a blind Bartimaeus or one of these blind men? You just cry out the more. Lord, please save me. I can't save myself. I'm helpless. Save me and save me today. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if that's the prayer of your heart today, I'm going to invite you to pray with me, to cry out to Jesus today, to cry out in your heart to the Lord who wants to save you, who gave his life for you. And you can do so by calling on him, by praying. And this is a suggested prayer. No one moving around. Nobody else moving around, all right? We're not, we're not finished with the services yet, quite, almost. But this morning, you want to receive Christ. Would you pray this prayer with me? Silently as I pray aloud. Lord God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying there for my sins. I open up the door of my heart. I ask you to come in. Please forgive me of all my sins and make me the person that you want me to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.